first reading today is from John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The word of the Lord. Our preaching text today is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, cleanse us from all falsehood, that we may always speak what is true. Amen. Well, last week, as you may recall, our reading from 1 John was focused on God's word to us. And the central point our author wanted to emphasize in those first four verses of 1 John was that God's word to us is a tangible word, a word that can be seen and can be heard and can be touched. This week, our reading picks up right where that one left off. And here the letter shifts now from being about God's word to focusing a bit more on our words. So if the first half of chapter 1 is primarily about God's speech to us, what we call preaching, then the second half is primarily concerned with our speech, and in particular what we call confession. Now, in my experience, when I talk about the word confession, uh, people usually think about it in one of two ways. So first off, if they have a Roman Catholic background, they're thinking about it in the terms of the Roman rite of uh, penance, where a Christian confesses their sin to a priest and the priest absolves them of their sin and assigns an act of penance as a way of making satisfaction for their sin, uh, which is different a bit from how the Lutheran practice of individual confession works, by the way. Uh, but on the other hand, if they don't have a Roman Catholic background, then they tend to think of confession in terms of a criminal investigation, where a person is accused of a crime and they make a confession. They admit to what they have done and they submit to the penalty. Either way, for most of us, when we hear confession, we think of it as owning up to your wrongs, whether you're doing that in a sanctuary or in a courtroom. Now, while that definition is true, it's not complete. I mean, and all you need to do to learn that this is not complete is watch any romantic comedy, uh, because all of them pretty much culminate in a moment of confession, 
right? The dramatic scene where one character finally confesses his or her love for another character when that person bears their heart to the other. Or if romantic comedies aren't your thing, uh, they're not particularly mine, uh, then just pay attention to our worship service because there's not one but two times when we use the word confess in nearly every worship service we have. First at the beginning of the service, of course, uh, when we confess our sin before God and one another and we hear God's word of forgiveness in return. Does anyone know off the top of your head where the second time we use the word confess in our service is? I heard it maybe somewhere in the back. In the Apostles' Creed, that's right. I come over here and I stand and I say, let us confess our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed or or whatever uh, creed it is we're using that day. Uh, Confession doesn't only mean confessing our sin, what we've done wrong. It also means confessing our faith, revealing that to which our heart clings. So rather than thinking of confession simply as owning up to our wrongs, I want us to think of confession as revealing what is in our hearts as speaking the truth to which our heart clings. This is especially the confession that our reading today is concerned with. This section of 1 John, it presses on us the importance of having a true confession rather than a false confession. So first, uh, the elder, as the author of these three letters of John uh, names himself, the elder gives us a true confession. He writes, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all, which is a lovely confession. Then he gives an example of a false confession. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while walking in darkness, we lie. That is to say, if we confess that we live in relationship with God, yet we neither trust in his son nor love our brothers and sisters, well, then that confession that we have made is shown to be false. Then he gives us another false confession. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then again in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, strong language, and his word is not in us. And of course, in between those two, the true confession. If we make the true confession, if we confess our sins, then God who is faithful, that is, uh, can be trusted, and God who is just, that is, right in his judgments, will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, there is some tension here. Because on the one hand, we hear that God is light, and that God uh, has no fellowship with darkness, right? In him there is no darkness at all. But on the other hand, we also read that if we claim to have no sin, then the truth is not in us. And in fact, uh, later on in 1 John, in chapter 3, verse 6, this is stated even more strongly, and there we read, no one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has either seen him or knows him. It seems like something of a catch-22. On the one hand, John makes it clear that sin has no place in God, so nothing short of perfect faith and perfect love is acceptable. On the other hand, it is also clear that if we claim perfection for ourselves, if we claim to have no sin, 
that is the same thing as calling God a liar. Now, if this seems like an impossible situation, that these two things can coexist together, well, that's because it is. Put simply, there is no way that we as sinners can have fellowship, relationship with a perfectly holy God unless God does something about it. So the letter continues in our reading uh, at the beginning of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. A professor of mine from seminary would often say that theology, talking about God, has two parts. I, the sinner, and God, the justifier. In other words, whenever we talk about God or our relationship with God, we're always dealing with these two realities. First, that we are sinners who by nature refuse to have a relationship with God, especially as God. We would much rather have God as uh, a useful tool in the pursuit of our own goals than submit ourselves to God's purposes for us. But the second reality is that God, who has every right to give up on us, has instead sent Jesus Christ in our place to make atonement for our sins. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but that word atonement is literally at-one-ment, at-o-n-e-ment. And that's exactly what it means. When Jesus atones for us, he makes us one with God. He puts us at one, united. He reconciles us with God. He creates anew this relationship which was broken by sin. And according to the logic of God's holy law, that is impossible because God is light and in him there is no darkness. So God, uh, and yet in Jesus Christ, God circumvented the logic of the law, atoning for sin, not just for the sin of Christians, but for the sin of the whole world as we read. Now, it might be easy for us to hear uh, that God uh, has, uh, Jesus Christ was given to us for this atonement and to thank God for this atonement and then just to leave it at that. It might be easy to content ourselves with that promise and then go about our lives as usual, but to do so would not do justice to what God has done for us. For atonement was not made just for us, but for the whole world. And atonement does not become at one until it is actually received by a person. And for that to happen, somebody has to announce it. There's a reason we start nearly every worship service by making a confession of sin, by hearing God's declaration of forgiveness, because by stating aloud that we are sinners, hopelessly opposed to our Creator, our sinfulness stops being simply an idea and becomes a spoken and undeniable word. It becomes a true confession. And by declaring aloud God's total forgiveness of your sin, our atonement is moved from being some far-off idea, some legal bookkeeping somewhere, to being a tangible word, one that you can see. You can see me as I say it. One that you can hear, one that you can touch in communion. 
And it is in the receiving of this promise, in hearing it, in believing it, in relying on it, it is in this moment that atonement happens for you. This is true in corporate confession when we confess together as a congregation, and it is also especially true in individual confession when I confess the sins that trouble my heart in the presence of another Christian and receive that word of forgiveness as though it was from Jesus Christ himself. And as you trust in this promise of Jesus Christ, this word of God made flesh, this word takes up residence in you and it lives in you, and your relationship with him is renewed, and you abide in the God who is light, where no darkness can abide. Then, having been created anew by this promise of God, you now are to announce this atonement to others. For the atonement is not just for you, it's for the whole world. And unless they hear of this atonement, unless this word of promise is proclaimed to them, it remains distant from them, and it does them no good. Think of it in this way. Imagine that you are the owner of a farm. And this farm, some of this it will be easier to imagine than others. This farm is mortgaged to some corporate bank somewhere. And as time goes on, you get further and further behind in the mortgage. And there comes a point where there is absolutely no hope of paying it off. The final notice has come in, and you now have less than a week before everything is taken away. You are under constant stress, as you can imagine. This farm is your livelihood. It's what you and your family rely on. And when you lose it, there are no other options. Now imagine that someone decides to pay off your mortgage. No strings attached. That someone decides that next week when the final notice uh, comes due, they will simply walk into that bank, they'll have a check for the total right there, and the debt will be wiped away just like that. Now, if that person never tells you of their intention, what good does it do you? How will your life be different over the next several days? Well, quite simply, it won't. Even though that debt is as good as paid, if you are never told of this fact, your days will be just as stress-filled as before. Even though your future is secured already, without someone announcing this truth to you, you will continue to live in your self-created hell with no hope of deliverance. But on the other hand, when someone pulls into your driveway and they come and they knock on your door and they tell you this good news that your mortgage has been or is about to be paid off in total and you believe what they tell you, of course, well, now life can be lived. Now the future is open. Now there is no need to live in fear. No longer does every resource need to be dedicated to staving off the inevitable loss of your livelihood. Now you can hope. Now, instead of dreading, you can be dreaming about your future. Brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, Jesus Christ has made atonement for you. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. You are totally free. 
You have received the good news. Your future is secure. Now go and do likewise. Amen.